I don't know how to follow that. (laughs) Let me just say how grateful I am to be with you, how much I love and appreciate what you do. The light that shines forth from this place is well known in so many places, and I've been the beneficiary of it as well as so many others, and I'm grateful to be here at Bobby Branch. Wish that my wife Tish could be here. You would see the better part of me if she was able to be here She's a sixth grade school teacher, and so she's not able to uh, be with me all of the time in the school year when I travel, but uh, you would be blessed to know her, and I'm blessed to know so many of you, some of whom I've known in travels across the world to Bible lands under Tony's direction, and then others I've known from various places. Thank you so much for the chance to be with you here this week at Bobby Branch. Little boy came up to his granddaddy as his granddaddy was sitting on the porch swing reading the Bible. Little boy said, Grandpa, what are you doing? Grandpa said, Well, I guess you might say I'm studying for my final exam. And you know, some of us think we've taken the last test we're ever going to take. I'll never be required to take another examination. But the truth be told, all of us are going to give account On the final day, each one shall give account of himself to God, Romans 14, 12. And we must all be made manifest before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account of the things we've done in the body, whether they be good or bad, 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 10. Now, my students back home at the school of preaching always want to know, Brother Clark, what's going to be on the test? What what should we study to be prepared for the upcoming examination? And the ornery side of me says, well, just study the Bible and you'll be fine. If you know the Bible, you'll be fine. They seem to want more specifics. And you know, the Bible is 31,102 verses in the King James Version, 1,189 chapters, 66 books. How do you break down that much material and make it manageable so that you and I are informed sufficiently to stand before God on the Day of Judgment? I'm going to suggest to you this morning there are four questions, four questions that if you and I can answer these questions, we'll be fine. Everything will be all right, thanks to the grace of God and our willingness to accept that grace by obedience. Now, here's the first question. Where did I come from? And by the way, these aren't some profound new things that I've come up with that no one's ever heard of before. I was a little boy listening to my dad preach so many times on this same kind of subject. And we never do need to get away from it because even though you know them, Peter said, I want you to be established in the present truth, Second Peter chapter 1, about verse 12 and following. And so we need to make sure that we know the answers to these questions, whether we're younger or older, these questions are so significant. Here's number one. Where did I come from? Well, what are my choices? I either came from God, as this book says, or I'm the result of accidental chance and happenstance. There's no purpose. There's no meaning. There was no rationale. There was just kaboom, an explosion, a big bang, and that started everything. Now, let's talk about what the Bible says. The Bible's clear. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1.1. And my Bible tells me in Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 4, every house is builded by some man. Well, who would deny that? I don't really know the background of the history behind how long this building has been here. 
But I could bring the world's most renowned atheist into this building and say, Sir, ma'am, we just want you to look around. Do you see any evidence of purposeful design? Do you see any evidence that someone did what has been done here and did it on purpose? You look at these registers that are stationed about the same distance apart that have air blowing out of them. It's almost as if that was planned. You see these lights that are stationed in just the right distance apart from one another, uniformly down the line. It's almost as if that happened by design and not by accident. And uh, there's some reason why this screen is here instead of on the back wall. It's almost as if this was done on purpose. And there's a contraption right there that is pointing right here. Why is it not pointing in the back corner over there? Well, because there was deliberate purpose and design on all of this, and the atheist wouldn't have any trouble understanding that. But when it comes to you, when it comes to me, infinitely more complex than anything I've pointed at, this is supposed to be accidental chance, happenstance. Who can believe it? Now, sometimes a way to show that something is absurd is to be absurd. And so please, as I go through what I'm about to go through, please uh, don't say as you sit there, who invited this guy anyway? How did he get here? Because I will confess to you up front, what I'm about to describe is as silly as silly can be, but sometimes that's what you have to do to show something. Young people, do any of you like cake? Some old people are raising their hands. I like cake. Younger people, you like cake? Let's say you come in tomorrow and your very favorite cake has been baked, frosted with your very favorite frosting. It's iced and written with your name across the top of it. And you track down Mama and say, Mama, thank you for baking my favorite cake. I love you. Mama says, I love you too, but I don't know what you're talking about because I didn't bake you a cake. Well, there's a cake in the kitchen counter with my name on it. Well, honey, I'm not responsible for it. Now, in my family, if, if my wife told my children she didn't do it, they wouldn't come running to me and say, Daddy, thank you for baking us a cake. They know that's not really in my repertoire. Bowl of Cheerios they might give me credit for, but not much beyond that. But maybe you're a chef and your children say, Hey, Dad, thanks. I've, that was so thoughtful of you to bake my favorite cake. And you say, I don't know what you're talking about. Now, your mom didn't do it. Your dad didn't do it. Do your brother and sister love you enough to bake your cake? Maybe, but they say, no, we didn't do it. Well, the cake is here. We have to account for its origin. It came from somewhere. So dad calls a family meeting. He said, I have really been studying about this all day, and I've got this thing figured out. I know what happened. I heard there were some earthquakes in our area where our house is situated, and it's as plain as day what must have happened. The earth's quaking and shaking. Our house, a mixing bowl, starts working its way out of the cabinet. And as the house is shaken with a particularly violent shake, here comes the mixing bowl, and it lands, fortunately, right side up, ready to receive ingredients. Somehow there was an explosion because of a violent shake, a gas main or something exploded, and that sent the refrigerator door flying open and sent eggs flying out of the refrigerator. And of all the places in the entire kitchen the eggs could have gone, aren't we fortunate? They smashed on the cabinet right above the mixing bowl and didn't get any eggshells in the mixing bowl. 
Somehow all the ingredients necessary for the baking of a cake, kaboom, collided into existence and then landed in the mixing bowl. And the mixing bowl is shaking and quaking and mixing up the ingredients. Well, Daddy, how did the... How did the mixing bowl get into a cake pan and then get into the oven and then get turned on and then have it come out and then have it frosted? How, how did all that happen? Young people, listen to me. <clears throat> Whenever you can't explain something that you see that's so marvelous, kaboom, a big explosion will explain it all. There was an explosion, you see, and that set the ingredients necessary for the baking of a cake to land in the mixing bowl, it's mixing up, and then here comes a cake pan, and it collides with the mixing bowl. <clears throat> mixing bowl's now upside down, emptying its contents into the cake pan. Daddy, how did it get in the oven? If you're listening, you'll know the answer to that. Kaboom, there's an explosion, sends a cake pan flying up, oven door flying open, cake pan flying in. Now we're getting somewhere. Daddy, who turned the oven on? Quaking and shaking, a mason jar falls out of the cabinet above the oven. It's falling toward the floor. It knocks into the knob and turns it to the bake setting. Another mason jar falls down, knocks into the temperature knob. Of all the temperatures, it could have knocked the temperature knob too. Knocked it to just the temperature needed to bake the cake. Daddy, who took the cake out of the oven when the cake was just ready to come? I mean, just right, just the right time to bring it out of the oven. Kaboom! Here comes the oven door flying open. Kaboom! Here comes the refrigerator door flying open. Here comes the frosting. And kaboom! There is a collision of frosting and cake. It smothered the cake in your favorite frosting. I don't really know how it wrote your name across it yet. I'm still working on that. But as soon as I figure it out, I'll let you know. But that's how the cake got here, boys and girls. Mama, do you want to call 911 or should one of us kids call 911? Because Daddy has lost his mind. I want to know who cleaned up the mess, don't you? Well, someone says, well, how did the... You never told us how the cake got here, though. Everyone knows the answer to that. Grandma brought it over, right? I can give you a rational explanation for how that cake got there. Now, here's the point. You and I are infinitely more complex than even the ingredients necessary to bake a cake. And if a cake has to have a baker, man has to have a maker. It's as simple as that. And my Bible tells me in Psalm 33 exactly how God made this world. I take Him at His word. I don't get lost in the scientific claims that say, oh, no, 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 no. It, it was done by evolutionary processes over millions and millions and millions and millions of years. I would believe that if that's the way God said He did it. But here's how God said He did it. Verse 6, Psalm 33. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the host of them by the breath of His mouth. Verse 9. For he commanded, it stood fast. He spoke, it was done. I want to ask you a question this morning. Do you believe in a God that's powerful enough to create the world in 60 minutes if he'd wanted to? Do you believe God is, has that much power? Does the God you believe in have enough power to make the world in 60 minutes if he wants to? Yes or no? Could he do it? All right, well, let me ask you a question. Why didn't he? 
Why did he take six days and rest on the seventh? Well, you say, how do you know that's what he did? He told me. I wasn't there. But I know that he, he was there and he said in Exodus 20 and verse 11, For in six days the Lord made heaven, the earth, the sea, and all that in them is, and rested on the seventh. Now if God said he did it in six days, I know he didn't do it in six days because that's how long it took him to do that. Uh, that's not how long a, an all-powerful being would need to do it. He must have done that not for himself, but for you and for me. He gave us a time frame in which to live our lives. Someone says, Brother Clark, you must not be aware of the uh, claims of the uh, dating of the earth. There are people that know this earth is billions and billions of years old. Well, first of all, let me say this about these claims. How do you know the earth is as old as you say it is? They say, well, because we found fossils. Okay, how do you know the fossil is as old as you claim it is? Well, because of the strata or the sediment we found it in. Okay, well, how do you know the sediment or the strata you found it in is as old as you claim it is? I'm not making this up. Well, because of the fossil we found in it. Okay, wait, wait a minute. I thought you said you knew how old the fossil was because of the dirt you found in it. Yes. But now you say that you know how old that dirt is because of how old the fossil is. Well, that's right. Anyone can see that. No, anyone can see that you're using one assumption to prove another assumption. And besides that, these dating methods must not be entirely accurate uh, because uh, I don't think the Civil War army button that was found it really dates back millions and millions of years, do you? And yet it was found in the same area that uh, they claimed other fossils there were millions of years old. And I, I know of a case where they found a modern-day fishing rod and reel in a section where that's supposed to be reserved for things millions of years old. But you know, the number one thing that helped me with this and to just put it out of my mind as far they anytime they make a claim for how old the earth is now, I just I basically think of this next thing I'm about to bring to you. And it's not something I came up with. I remember as a young boy hearing a preacher mention this, and it was like, of course, why didn't I think of that? That's so simple. Let me just ask you this way. Did God, according to the Genesis record, did God make Adam as a helpless little baby boy who needed a mama to nurse him into his adult years, or did God make Adam full-grown and mature and ready for operation on the first day of Adam's existence? Right? So Adam's a man. God creates him as a man. So let me ask you this. Five days after God created Adam and put him on this planet... Five days later, how old was Adam? Five days old, right? Have you ever seen a five-day-old with whiskers? Have you ever seen a five-day-old child look like a full-grown adult? Well, no, so wait a minute. Adam's only five days old, but he appears to be much older than he actually is. That's right. Now, if God could build man with the appearance of age already built into him, could he have done the same thing with the universe, yes or no? If not, why not? So I don't get all worked up when they start saying the universe is this many millions or billions of years old. Here's what I just say. I say, well, it may appear to be that old, but actually it's much younger 
Just as Adam may appear to be a full-grown man of many years, but actually he's five days old, five days after God made him. And so I don't worry about things like that. I just take God at his word, and I know that there is a God in heaven, Daniel 2.28, and I know that just as every house is builded by some man, he that built all things is God, Hebrews 3 and verse 4. So where did I come from? I came from the God of the Bible who had the power to create this universe just as he said he did in the Bible. Now that raises the second of four questions. What am I doing here? May I suggest to you how I answer question one has everything to do with how I answer this question and the remaining ones? If I don't think there's a God in heaven, then my life on earth has no meaning, no purpose. Basically, this is what I'm doing. I get up in the morning. I go to work. I get money in my account from working, and I buy goods and services with it, and I buy a house in which to live and dwell, a car to drive, clothes to wear, food to eat, and other items that I may enjoy for my entertainment and pleasure, and I go to sleep at night so I can get up in the morning and go to work and come back home and do the same thing the next day and the next day and the next day, and I do this over and over and over and over and over and over again, And so I can get me some more stuff and pay some more bills so that when I die, I can what? Solomon, did you ever wonder why you were here? Yes. Did you ever try to find happiness in all kinds of different places? Yes. Look at Ecclesiastes with me and notice that Solomon is writing an inspired diary for us and telling us, look, If you want to know whether seeking satisfaction will be found in these things, let me save you some time and heartache. Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Solomon, what was your bottom line? I mean, this is what you wanted more than anything else. Verse 1 of Ecclesiastes 2. I said in mine heart, how ironic, the very man who in Proverbs 3, 5 said, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart. Lean not to your own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. That same man later in his life is practicing this philosophy of, uh, I said in mine heart. What did you say in your heart, Solomon? I said, go to now. I'll prove thee with mirth. Therefore, here it is. What's life all about to you? Enjoy pleasure. Enjoy pleasure. Solomon, how's that working for you? This, it's also, it's vanity, it's emptiness. So I tried to laugh my way through it. Send in the clowns and make me laugh. But uh, that, I, I quit laughing and then the misery was still there. Solomon said, I tried wine. Maybe if I drink alcohol, it will give me the satisfaction I seek. Apparently that didn't work because he started making great works, verse 4, and built houses in the plural. Someone says, if I could just have my dream house, I'd be happy. Solomon had houses that he dreamed of that you and I would dream of. And yet uh, he says, I planted vineyards. You talk about beautifully landscaped property. And he had servants, people to pamper him, take care of him, do whatever he wanted done. He had more cattle than anybody before him in Jerusalem, verse 7. Silver and gold, antiques like you can't believe. And if he he didn't have an iPod, he didn't have... an iPhone, but he could bring in the people to play his music for him right there on the spot. Come, a concert on command. Come here and sing my favorite songs for me. 
If you could do what Solomon said he did in verse 10, would you be happy? Watch verse 10. Whatsoever mine eyes desired, I kept not from them. Stop. Have you ever gone to the car lot, young men? You see the car you'd love to be your first car, but you don't take it home as your first car. Why not? You wanted it. I couldn't afford it. We couldn't afford it. Let me ask you, and you know, as I've asked this question in various places across the years, I, look, I always look at the faces of young people. Young people will just flat out be honest with you about what they think. And you know how many times I've asked this question, and I see young people, very young, especially in the audience, going, uh-huh, yes. Here's the question. If you could get to the point where you had so much money, you could buy anything you wanted, the moment you wanted to buy it, would you be happy? And we're tempted to say, oh, yes. Solomon could. He could have bought anything he wanted the moment he wanted it. And how's that working for you? Verse 11, I looked on all the works my hands had wrought, the labor I'd labored to do. It's all vanity and grasping for the wind. I've got it, I've got it, I've got it. Okay, open your hand and show us what you have. I have nothing. Because nothing in this life is going to satisfy me. I need to have an above the sun view, not some horizontal view. I need to be vertical. I need to be thinking, setting my affection on things above. Colossians 3 and verse 1. Five miles from where I used to preach is Graceland Mansion where Elvis Presley used to live. I preached one Sunday morning in South Haven, Mississippi and told the following story about how Elvis Presley was conducting an interview with a music magazine. And the reporter said something to Elvis, and then Elvis responded in this way. He said, sometimes I believe I'm the most miserable man on earth. And the reporter's like, come on. You're miserable. Elvis Presley, with your 20-plus room mansion, your private limousine to whisk you to your private jet so you can go to wherever you want to go, and you've got more money than most of us will have in a combined lifetime of years of work, and you've got it already in your bank account right now, and women, attractive women, think you're attractive and scream your name in sheer delight, and oh, there, there are so many men that would love to trade places with you, and he would not take it back. He wouldn't say that he was not really that miserable. I told you all that to tell you this. There was a couple in our service that Sunday morning. I went to their house Tuesday night just to thank them for coming, said, please come back. When they saw me on the front porch, very enthusiastic, invited me right on in. And then she said, she said, oh, it was so amazing to us. We hadn't been to church in 17 years. And the first Sunday we go back to church, you preached on Elvis. And that was so amazing. It was amazing to me, too, because I didn't think I preached on Elvis. I told one thing about him in an exposition of 1 Timothy 6, 7 and following, which says, we brought nothing into this world. It's certain we can carry Nothing out. The love of money, you remember, is the root of all evil. First Timothy 6.10, which while some coveted after, they've erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But I said, why is it so amazing to you that I mentioned that story about Elvis? 
She said, well, Gene here is Elvis's first cousin. His mother and Elvis's mother were sisters, and so we were part of the family. In fact, we used to live at the mansion in the upstairs portion of it. I'm going to be honest with you. I didn't know these people. And I, when she made that claim, I was sitting there in my mind thinking, what kind of disconnected from reality, bless their heart, folks have I run into? They think they lived with Elvis. Bless their hearts. She pulls out the photo album. She says, look here. This is us at the movie set, Jailhouse Rock. This is us at this particular holiday party together. Look here. She's showing me all these photographs. She's telling me the truth. I see the evidence right there. And no Photoshop back then in the world could have made it look this convincing. This was really the truth. And then he said this. He said, you really took me down memory lane Sunday morning when you said that about that interview. He said, let me tell you the rest of the story. I said, well, how do you know? He said, Elvis would allow us if we wouldn't interfere to just sit in the room and observe as he was interviewed. We could just watch and be silent observers. He said, I was in the room when that interview was conducted. He said, you will never know how this reporter could not fathom how a man like Elvis Presley, with all of his fame and fortune, could possibly be miserable. How could that be? And yet, you know what? Solomon could have saved the Elvis Presleys of this world, the Robin Williams of this world, all these people that seem to be, they have it so together on the outside and there's so much fun and they make life fun and yet sometimes inside those very people are hurting the most. And Solomon says, been there, done that, trust me, life is not about getting more stuff. That's not the bottom line to life. J. Pierpont Morgan, one of the greatest financiers Wall Street ever knew, many, many decades ago now, but businessmen from hundreds of miles around walked by his casket, and one of them said to the other, reckon how much he left behind. And somebody said correctly, he left it all behind. Have you ever seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul? With all the material possessions in it that someone owned so they could take it with them into the next life? We brought nothing into this world. It's certain we can carry nothing out. First Timothy 6 and Matthew 6 says, Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. A farmer took a, a preacher out on his property. He said, I want you to look over here, preacher. As far as your eyes can see, that's all my land. I own all of that. Now look over here. As far as your eyes can look in this direction, that's my property, my farm. Now look over here. As far as your eyes can scan in this direction, that's all mine. And I think he thought the preacher was going to really, really praise him. And the preacher said instead, he said, well, I guess that's good. I, how much do you own in that direction? Now, isn't that the question everyone in here needs to be asking? We have various economic status represented in this room right here. But I'll tell you the great equalizer, death. Rich man, you fared sumptuously every day, wear the finest clothes. That's right. Lazarus was at your gate just begging for crumbs. Uh, he was sick and afflicted, and the dogs would come and lick his sores. 
Now, you died and he died, and things are different now. Friends, it doesn't matter how much, seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be, Peter would write in Second Peter chapter 3. He said, this world is going to burn up, the earth and the works that are therein shall be burned up when the Lord comes back, Second Peter 3. So tell me why I should put all my focus on things that are just going to burn up someday. Instead, I need to Ecclesiastes 12.13. Hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God. Keep His commandments. This is the whole of man. The word duty is italicized there. It's not a bad word, but it's not a necessary word. You could say the, the whole essence of man, the whole of man is fear God, keep His commandments. Matthew 5.16, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. That's why I'm here. Whatsoever you do, do to the glory of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 31. I'm so grateful to God that He's given me a purpose, a reason for living, and a hope for living beyond this life, which brings me to the last two questions. Where am I going and how do I get there? And where am I going? There are, either, there are only two choices, really. I'm going to heaven or I'm going to hell. You said, you just said the word hell in a modern day assembly, I know. Because I can still read about it in my Bible. And the words that Christ spoke will judge us in the last day. John 12, 48. Hell is still real, friend. But so is heaven. And I know that he's there, and he wants me to be there with him. And fortunately, he gave me directions. We have GPS systems today that are so helpful when they work, right? But we have GPS, a gospel plan of salvation that will guide me from this life to the next life, and it never gives me bad directions. Some years ago, I was getting ready to hold a meeting in Kentucky. I thought I knew the way to the building, but I wanted to be double sure. So I got online and I checked the Google Maps from my hotel to the church building address. Just to be sure, I went to Rand McNally's website, typed in the same information, and just to be sure, I went to MapQuest and then punched it into my garment. had four separate sources and they all said the same thing about how to get there. So what confidence do you think I had the next day when I walked out of my hotel room to head there? Quadruple confidence. I get to the place where the voice says, you've reached your final destination. And there's nothing but a clump of trees. And I think, well, maybe the church building is on the back side of this trees, a grove of trees. I went, no, it wasn't. I have no idea where the church building is. And uh, I did not bring the phone number with me of the person to call. And so I was hoping they'd call me, and they finally did. Brother Clark, are you all right? No. I'm lost. Well, where are you? And right at that moment, I was driving by this sign that said such and such state park. He said, oh, Brother Clark, you're 35 miles from us. (laughs) 35 miles? I've gone that far in the wrong direction? Yes, But I checked Google Maps and I checked MapQuest and Garmin and Rand McNally and 
And do you think they all got in a room somewhere some years ago and said, let's get B.J. Clark. We'll show him a thing or two. We'll put purposefully wrong directions there, and that will show him. Friends, I have no doubt that they're not even aware. They were not even aware of the error. But I want to ask you a question. If one person gives bad directions and three others copy those bad directions and pass them on to others, how many of them are wrong? They're all wrong. On the road from earth to heaven, are there people in this religious world giving bad directions? Yes or no? I'm sad to say yes, there are. They are sincere, many of them. They do not even know, perhaps, that uh, some of the directions they're giving are incorrect. At least some folks don't know. I would not impugn the motives of everyone and say they're all deliberately aware of what they're doing. Friends, but I'm going to ask you a question. Did I sincerely believe in my heart that I was going the right place in the right way? Did I think I was following the right directions? Yes or no, when I left that day, did I sincerely believe I was headed to the right place? Yes. Did my sincerity change the facts? No. So you may have come here this morning and you sincerely believe in your heart that you're on the road to heaven. I want to ask you to double check that. Quadruple check. You say, well, where? You've already pointed out that you could go to a trusted authoritative source and find out that it's wrong but not with this authoritative source. This book has never given anyone bad directions. Never. Get on the right road and stay straight. And you'll find the narrow way that leads to what? That leads to life. And I still believe that's true. I don't have to be lost in a devil's hell. That was prepared for the devil and his angels. God doesn't want me going there. My friends, God does want me to come and live with Him in heaven above. And so He gave me a GPS by which to do that. Here's what He said. I need to, here are the steps I need to take to get from where I am now to heaven. I need to first admit I'm lost and I need directions. I don't know what to do and I've messed up. I've done, I've sinned against God. Romans 3.23 says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Okay, now what do I do? Jesus said, I'll show you the way. I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. You just follow me and I'll get you to the right place. All right, Lord, if I follow you, what will I do? Well, you'll believe that I am the Son of God because I've proven that by my signs and teachings, John 8 and John 5. And I want you to know that Jesus is worthy of your following because he's never taken a bad step he did no sin. You can follow his steps. 1 Peter 2.21 and 1 John 2.6. You can walk as he walked and you'll end up in the right place every time. So what did Jesus tell me to do after I believed in him? He said I need to repent or perish, Luke 13.3 and 5. That I must be baptized because it's he that believeth and is baptized who shall be saved. But when the eunuch wanted to be baptized, he was said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he said, I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He made a good confession. Wouldn't it be wonderful today to see someone here say, I know I'm on the wrong road. I know I need to get on the right road. I'm going to follow God's GPS, and I'm going to do what this book says. I want to tell you something. There are folks out there, and you could find multiple sources who would tell you this. If you want to get to heaven, just do this. Bow your head, say this prayer, ask Jesus to come into your heart, make him the Lord of your life, 
And then when you finish doing that, you will be saved. Friends, if you can show me those directions in this GPS, I will preach that this week at this meeting. If you can't show me that in this GPS, then I'm going to preach what I can find in this GPS, which is this. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Acts 2.38. And that will add you to the church Jesus bled and died for. Acts 2.47. Wouldn't it be great to just be a member of that blood-bought church? Now, I don't know when the Lord's coming back. I don't know when you're going to meet Him before He comes back. If you die, your situation is sealed. There won't be any change in your soul after you die. The rich man found that out. Luke 16, 19-31. So here's my question. You're not just having a gospel meeting this week for a formality, right? Well, it's April. We're supposed to have a meeting, so let's have one. I really think the elders and I really think the members here have a different idea. I think you think there are souls that are troubled and burdened with sin who could relieve that guilt in the blood-bought Christ church, church that belongs to Christ, the cross of Christ. And I think you think... That maybe just someone even today is sitting here saying, my life's so off course, I need to get on the right path and realize what this life's all about. It's a dressing room for eternity, and I'm going to come down one of these aisles, and I'm going to make things, I'm going to start fresh. I'm going to start a brand new path right now today by hearing, believing, repenting, confessing, and being baptized for the remission of sins. Now, some of you, in fact, I would say a, a bulk of you perhaps have already done those initial steps. But you know Demas did too? Yeah. Demas obeyed the same plan of salvation you did and was faithful and even a missionary companion of Paul for a time. But Paul would write this of Demas, Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world. Demas forgot why he was here, and he forgot this world is going to burn up. You see, the Bible says this as I close. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. For all that is in the world, is it's not of the Father, it's of the world. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, none of that's of the Father. That's of the world. The world passes away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God... Abideth forever. And oh, how wonderful it would be for you to leave here today with that blessed assurance. Won't you answer these questions now correctly so that when the Lord comes back, you'll have already studied up for your final exam and you'll be ready. Won't you get ready now as together we stand and sing, won't you please come to Jesus Christ?